Ready graphics? Ready theme? If you're afraid to open the door because there might be a bear there, that's anxiety. But if you open the door and there's a bear there, that's fear. You know, learning the difference between the two things. What what bear have you created for yourself? If you open that door, do you think, you know what I'm saying? And save it for when there's really a bear at the door. Save your fears. Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And we have an interview that uh, we have been waiting to share with you guys today. Oh, we are so excited about this interview. This interview checks off multiple fandom boxes for us. (laughs) And hopefully for you, whether you love musical theater Mm -hmm. or you love television or Mm -hmm. you love movies, this is an interview for you. We are speaking with the Joanna Gleason. Tony winner Joanna Gleason. Joanna is one of those people that you know from so many things. There, We have highlights from somebody that we couldn't even cover with her, but a few might be. You might know her from The West Wing, from Boogie Nights, from Friends, from, as above mentioned, Tony Warren winning role in Into the Woods. We think you're going to really enjoy this interview. And please, when you're done listening, don't forget to come and interact and follow us on social media. We're at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Murphy Brown Pod. Yeah, let us know what you thought and join us in the discussion. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Hello. This is Joanna Gleason coming to you from Tiny Farm. (laughs) Which is your lovely home. Which is our lovely home. And thank you for coming here. Thank you for having us. A pleasure. Yes. It's a nice mix-up for us location-wise. I get a new background to see from Chicago, and Lauren gets to move around. That's right. Mm -hmm. And pick tomatoes. (laughs) Ooh, that sounds lovely. Ooh, nice. So uh, we always like to start with your origin story. In any way that you would like to, it's talk a girl, Mister Hall. I mean, how far back? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> well, that's pretty far back. That's pretty far back. Let's, let's not go that far back. Born in Toronto, raised in Westchester, New Rochelle, New York. Moved to California when my dad's work took him to California. Mm-hmm. My dad, as many people know, was Monty Hall, and he mm-hmm. was in radio and then television, and then sort of very famously in television with a show that is on to this day. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you, Wayne Brady, and thank you, CBS. Do you want to maybe tell our younger <laughs> listeners what that show is? It's called Let's Make a Deal. And I, what's interesting is I got to see the pilot. My dad and mom both passed away two years ago, very close together. Mm -hmm. And they were very old, 96 and 90. And we were walking down memory lane, my sister and brother and I, and we watched the pilot of Let's Make a Deal where nobody was in funny costumes. They were in little black dresses and pearls and suits and ties. What happened, it was 1963. And then the world started to change. Kennedy was assassinated, and then there was the Vietnam War, and there were hippies and protesters and the Beatles, and people started to shed the conventions of the 60s, the 50s, really, and 60s, mm-hmm. and people started dressing up to get attention to be chosen to be on the trading floor, and oh, that's what happened. Of that's course. nothing they ever intended. I didn't put that together, but that makes sense that yeah. if you really want to get picked, you're going to start to dress in a way that gets you attention. Yes, exactly. That's so funny. That's actually growing up in in the 80s and then the 90s. That's what I knew the show for. Right. You wouldn't have known. It was a show with the costumes. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) It's humble origins. (laughs) So artistically, what what from your your growing up do you think led you to where you are today? You know, that's kind of the origins that we like because we're both artists, Mm -hmm. obviously. And uh, we find it fascinating as part of your origins to see, you know, what – either influences or, 
you know, was there music around when you were growing up? Yes. My Sundays, which is why Sundays are actually kind of hard now that they've gone, but Sundays, uh, there was always an album playing, you know, remember albums there was, mm-hmm. I mean, literally an album, a, a 33 and a third, um, of classical music or music from Broadway shows. And they took us to the theater. You know, we lived in New Rochelle, 45 minutes from Broadway. And we saw shows when I was nine, when I was 11, you know, and those are very informative years for me. Uh, one of the shows that I saw was how to succeed in business without really trying with, Mm. with Robert Morse and Rudy Valley. And then when I was, you know, in my I guess twenties or something. I was in the revival of it with Robert Morris and Rudy Valley in in San Francisco oh, and Los wow. Angeles. Yeah, that was quite a trip. But but I I remember thinking that there was a world on stage there where people could be many people where they could reinvent themselves. And since we moved so much when I was a kid, I was constantly kind of reinventing myself, you know, well, that worked that time. (laughs) Now maybe I'll be less of a dork in this school. And maybe I won't afraid to be, be afraid to be, you know, the smart one in this one or the funny one. And it, it was like putting together like a Mrs. Potato Head, but it was actually advantageous as an artist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you, when you were looking at, I mean, growing up with the proximity of Broadway, but then also having your father in, in film and television production, was there, did you have a leaning either way with where you wanted to go as a performer? Because I know you from, from all avenues, from all medium, uh, media, would you say that you're, you initially wanted to be on stage or behind a camera? On stage uh, only. Really. I mean, under the big umbrella of show business, my mom had been in radio and had been a model and had done radio in Canada as an actress. She was also the hands on Perry Como's craft. Was it craft? You know, variety hour where, where they would show you the advertisement for Philadelphia cream cheese or craft cream mm-hmm. cheese. <laughs> that was my mom's hands. She was pregnant with me, spreading the cream cheese on the bread and showing that it doesn't tear, which was funny because <laughs> they were using vanilla pudding, she said, because the cream cheese tore the bread. But oh, there was, wow. there was, um, there was the entertainment industry all around, but nobody I knew was in the theater. And it was like, it was my exposure to going to the theater, which made me say that's, that's for me. There's still a little magic involved there. Yes, there's, there's magic. And also there's a, um, a kind of depth of storytelling. Uh, and, and it's live there, you know, there's somebody right there that mm-hmm. you can relate to or love or hate or, you know, aspire to be, or somebody whose performance literally takes your breath mm-hmm. away right there. Yeah. And that never happened to me watching television back in the day. Um, or, or the movies I liked as a kid growing up were all the black and white movies from the thirties mm-hmm. and forties. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, kind of of a different time. And that, that acting in the black and white movies most closely resembled to me the honesty that mm-hmm. I found when I went to the theater. Mm-hmm. There's something very theatrical about the black and white that is, it, you see it as, I, I think, as a bridge between theater and what we see now on film and television with the ability to use spectacle and not rely too much on the the medium itself to tell the story that's the actors are are 
very key to black and white film. They are indeed. And mm-hmm. and because it is black and white, there are literally shades of gray. Mm-hmm. So the performances mm-hmm. seem more nuanced, mm-hmm. you know, to, to me. And they and they can do less. It's not so literal. They can show you more with their eyes and lighting. Oh my God, the brilliant, mm. you know, the brilliant cinematographers of, of that time. And Lauren and I were speaking before. Yes, I've spoken to her before I met you. Yes. Sorry. It's okay. I, I understand. I confess. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that there are those you know, black spaces between the frames mm. in, in 35 millimeter and in particularly in black and white films where there's that, you can't really clock it with your eye, but you feel the, the absence of anything happening so that you can feel something. Mm-hmm. You feel the depth and I'm, I'm, there's depth. There's some great television on now. There's some mm. great, particularly on cable, uh, some fantastic, uh, stories, beautifully shot and beautifully acted. I don't really find it on network television anymore Mm-mm. with the relentless thumping soundtracks and the kind of generic acting. You know, it's, yes. I mean, mm-hmm. there are exceptions, but really I, I, I'm like, we're, we're, we're more hooked on watching what's on cable or the occasional mm-hmm. movie that comes out than regular television. You can take risks on cable, I think. Yeah. I think that's the thing that's mm-hmm. exciting about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what brought you to New York? Uh my dad got a job when we were living in Toronto and I was five and he moved us down to Mount Vernon because he was doing, what was he doing? He did a show called Monitor. He, he substituted for, uh, during the quiz show scandal, the 21 scandal when it was Jack Barry, right? That was his name. Oh, yes. The host. Everybody kind of had to. Yeah, you know, flee or freeze while that was being investigated. But the show went on and dad came in as a kind of interim host. Ah, And then he started making the rounds and he got this show called uh, Video Village, but it was out in California. So he moved to California while we stayed in New York. And then he came back. He'd come back and forth. Uh, That was hard and crazy. Then he and a partner, Stefan Hadas, created this show called Let's Make a Deal, and that moved us out to California. Oh, more oh. steady work. Yeah. Yeah. It's still on. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a really fun show. Honestly, I watched it the other day. I was like, oh, this thing that I thought was a relic from my childhood is still going, and I adore it. It's still I, going. It's really fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm happy that game shows in general just seem to be coming back. Well, the thing about game shows is that they are more reality TV than reality TV. Reality Mm -hmm. TV is essentially scripted and it's manipulated and Mm -hmm. it's edited and nobody's behaving in any way, shape or form like a real human being, (laughs) you know, just, they know there's a camera there, so it changes the behavior. But on the game shows, they forget about the camera, they're there to play the game. And so you see people, you know, and I love Jeopardy. I'm, mm, Jeopardy. Oh, yes. Oh, that's like, you know, stop, stop the presses. We have to watch Jeopardy. (laughs) I will spend far too much time watching Jeopardy and trying to play along and feeling really good about myself until about halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we shout out the answers, but if I don't say what is, then Chris gets all upset. <laughs> it's the wow. rule. That you is... have to follow the structure. Yeah. I don't do that. So I'm very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get it out as fast as possible. And yeah. I'm usually alone. So that is a little, little, doesn't make a lot much sense, but it's fine. Yeah. My cats judge me if I don't say what is, it's how it works. Mm-hmm. I will from mm-hmm. now on. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> so something we talk about a lot for our listeners is for the two of us as as actors, we're very familiar with the uh, the longevity of career and that it's not just an overnight sensation that happens. Uh, what was it like for you getting into that field as a career? Did you have a moment that you felt like you had the big break or did you? was it a slower burn as you, you went? Know, you just 
you don't feel the momentum because you know that every job is going to end, mm-hmm. essentially. So I think that uh, I, I think I knew it was a career when the jobs came closer together, mm. and when the the phone rang, you know, more often, or when shows I was on lasted a little longer, or I could go from show to show. But I I learned, and this was very important for me to learn, and I didn't learn it until I was in my close to forty is that I had to stop thinking of the times when I wasn't working as downtime. Mm. When somebody says, what do you do in your downtime? I go, no, 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 no. That's my life. Yeah. You know, it's not down. It's not a pause. It's not a lull. It's not a deficit. It's my life. And unless Mm. you build a real life, you know, you're going to be unhappy when you're not working. And that's just, to me, unforgivable. Absolutely. Yeah, it took me a long time to figure that out myself. One, One must figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's the key to longevity, I think, is that if you're going for just these single moments when you're working, you're missing the whole. You are. I mean, I, I, to me, you can be over the moon ecstatic when you're working, and I, and I have been, and yes, you become, oh, like a family, you know, with this theater group or that theater group, never in the movies or TV. You don't feel that, but you do when you're, when you're doing a play um, or a musical, you're in the trenches together, and, and then you go home. You know, and then you just have to, for me, there was no true happiness until I couldn't wait to get home. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, I forget who said the quote, but there's about being, acting is one of the only careers where as soon as you get a job, you start looking for the next one. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, that just does <laughs> hellish things to your nervous system. <laughs> you know what I mean? But- I have to try and explain to people that auditioning is essentially job interviews, consistent job yeah. interviews. You just don't interview every five years. You interview every day sometimes. Well, my, and my Chris Sarandon, my husband, his his um, daughter, Alexis, was playing at a friend's house and she was very, very young. And the mother said um, to her own daughter, uh, tell Alexis what daddy does. And that little girl said, oh, my daddy's a fireman. And, and then the mother said to Alexis, and what does your daddy do? And Alexis said, he looks for work. Oh, <laughs> All from the mouth of babes. Yeah, because that's essentially (laughs) your job. Yeah. Well, speaking of musical theater, um, you are considered by many to be a legend of the stage. A legend? A legend. An urban myth? (laughs) (laughs) I definitely broke the VHS of Into the Woods when I was a child. (laughs) That's great. What what is for you the difference between acting for stage and acting for musical theater? Because a lot of people um don't realize that there is a different skill set and approach that can happen with that particular endeavor. Oh, there's not really. I mean, look, in in a musical you are obliged to, you know, learn the songs and learn what the songs are about and learn how they relate to the scene that went before and how they carry the action forward to the next scene and you have mm-hmm. to be able to uh uh perhaps dance at the same time or move, but you have to it's the same you're just telling a story in a different mm-hmm. way and I didn't think I had any particularly different skill sets other than to get my voice in shape mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. eight shows a week, which is, ugh, I don't know how people yeah. do it. Um, yeah. But if you're no, if you're not really a good actor, no matter how great a voice you have, you're not going to really be any better in a musical, is my mm-hmm. humble opinion. I am H-O, as they say, in my <laughs> humble opinion, is that it? Um, yeah, acting is acting, you know, mm-hmm. and... And yes, there are great singers and then there are okay singers. And there are people who you don't mind following them while they sing, even if they're not the big, you know, 
voices of our time. And I'm certainly not one of those big voices of our time, never was. But I, I know that I have sung in character and what the character needed and mm -hmm. could, and I could do that, but I never stopped thinking as the character. I never stopped thinking, you know, in character while navigating, yep. mm -hmm. you know, key changes and, and dance moves. It's just, a, there's a few more things you have to coordinate. It's all about just coordinating the stuff you should already have in your hip mm -hmm. pocket. When you were working on Into the Woods, could you tell that it was going to be such an amazing show or is it you don't know when you're working on something because you're just working it? I think, I think we knew and we took it to San Diego and then changes were made after San mm -hmm. Diego before Broadway. But my God, you know, you're there with Steve Sondheim and James Lapine, and mm -hmm. and I everything I and and actually I had just seen um, not too uh, long before doing Into the Woods I had seen Sunday in the Park and mm -hmm. I, I just thought my God this is the world this is the world that I want to be in and then I then I got to be with yeah. with those two men. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, then there's um, Nick and Nora, the musical by mm -hmm. Arthur Lawrence, with a score by Charlie Strauss, and Richard Maltby did the lyrics, and and we just had a feeling it was going to fall down around our ears, and it did, it did. It, you know, and I said this before. If if you watch Game of Thrones in the finale, remember Cersei and Jaime are mm -hmm. clinging to each other, and the whole thing falls down. That's what it felt like. <laughs> you know, Chris and I were standing. I mean, we knew. We knew because nothing got fixed, oh, and we previewed yeah. in town, and nothing got fixed. So Oof, yeah, yeah, you can feel it. You can feel it in a production. That's a, I think that is something. Harkening back to you saying when you're in a theater production, you get the time to kind of create that community. You feel it from each other. You're not oh, just. Yeah. No, you can't hide it. It's like when people come backstage and go, "Oh, <laughs> wow." <laughs> You just go, oh, well, I'm so, what What kind of language restrictions yeah. do you have here? Any? Oh, well, oh, you can no. say anything You're you fine. want because we'll just, we'll just bleep you. It's oh, you're going to yeah. bleep it? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's not worth it. But, but <laughs> we're, but, but we, we just knew. And uh, yeah. And you know, when you go out and, and, and word of mouth has spread because you've been previewing already for like a month and a half yeah. mm -hmm. and you know, you have a bullseye painted on your tuchus and you just hear the arrows whizzing past you all night. Like, oh my God, we're so bleeped. Well, and a lot of people don't understand the idea that opening night is not not op truly opening for you guys. You've been you've been either doing tech elsewhere, you've been doing previews, like, you've been hearing for a while. Opening night is just it. It's a different concept than the first time everybody sees. Yeah, opening you. night was a wake. Do you know oh. what I mean? Opening night, we went to Sardi's, and I'm we're at the party at Sardi's when the New York Times used to come out around you know eleven o'clock at night, or so the review would come out and. Yeah, and here you are, and people are kind of looking at you and not looking at you, and everybody's eating and walking past you. And I was there with, and Chris was there, and his kids were there, and my son was there with his father, and my ex-husband was there with his kids who were my ex-stepkids, and, 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 you know, and his ex-wife with her soon-to-be husband. And there, I mean, we were all there together in this <laughs> lifeboat at Sardi's when suddenly the review came out and the place cleared. Oh, you know, yeah. and there we sat. At the table, mm -hmm. just us and a waiter. You know, <laughs> oh, I, I just for our audience who maybe not be musical theater mavens like Jesse and I are, as we were speaking, I just want to tell everybody the cast of this, other than yourself uh, and and your husband Chris Sarandon, was uh, Barry Bostwick, Deborah Monk, Christine Baranski, and Faith Prince. Yeah. Yes, and Ramac Ramsey and Tom Sesma mm -hmm. and and I mean, I mean it just went yeah. on and on. It was not our fault. Mm -hmm. 
at all. And later, and many, many years later, Arthur, who also directed it, copped to uh, it not being in the best shape it could have been mm -hmm. as a book. And then I, th I thought the direction also was was unclear and it needed cutting and it needed a, a lot of things. Mm. That said, and you know, for those of you who don't know, Nicanora was based on the 1930s movies, The Thin Man, Which William love, Powell and yeah. Myrna Loy and their little dog, Asta, that they, two high society New York people who solved murders. And it could have been, but you know, when you go to see Nicanora, in your mind, you're seeing William Powell and Myrna Loy and you're hearing that kind of basic story and this was very complicated and convoluted and too many plots and and it just it never got off the ground mm -hmm. except chris and i got together yeah so <laughs> something good came out of that yeah, yeah. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about working with james lapine and stephen sondheim as collaborators they have a a, a deep and wonderful respect for each other and a working relationship mm -hmm. and if something needed to be fixed, James is very visual also, so the pictures he creates and the story he tells, they're, they're spare. Do you know what I mean? The mm -hmm. the the language and the, the dialogue, it's spare, it's funny, it's true. And Steve's lyrics are true and smart. And we knew that if we ran a scene and it wasn't working, and we weren't sure because the material was always so good that they would know. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of faith in knowing that you're in the best hands. They know what to cut. They know what doesn't work. They know what needs to get rewritten. And then the genius is, with both of them, they can rewrite it. They know what to rewrite. You know, there are some people who make no changes because they're either they're putting their foot down or the fact is they don't know what to do next. But but the thing about genius is you can, somebody's definition of genius is someone who can do it every day. And mm. that that's, they may, they may disagree with me, but that's James and that's Steve. Mm. I think there's something that makes me very, I work a lot with new play development and something that always makes me nervous are people who are precious with their books, yeah. especially, and that when they're unwilling to cut mm -hmm. or unwilling to change something, that's when I get nervous. Not when a lot needs to be done. It's the reaction of refusal and that fear of cutting. Right. Exactly. That's what makes me nervous. Exactly. Because you, you know, it, 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 I've written a, a, a solo show that we've done at, at Feinstein's 54 Below. And it's, I, I did one about six years ago. It was very autobiographical. And I brought up some guest stars and sang from the, the obligatory songs from shows I've been in, you know, sort of that. But it had a, it had also some kind of more narrative written and sort of fantasy sequences in it. But this is very different. And my, my music director, Jeffrey Kleitz, he felt, uh, uh, sure enough. And smart enough, he is, to say to me, you don't need that. Cut this. Yeah. This is better here. No, that's from another show. That's not the show you're writing. And and I thought, oh, I love this. I love collaboration. I just love it. I love getting notes. I love getting mm -hmm. notes because there's always yeah. something I can't see, you know, that somebody has seen. And now then there are people who have their opinions that they're just like wild. And I just go, well, that person's an idiot, clearly. So I... I'll just ignore that. But <laughs> but there there are so many people in my immediate circle, my sister and my brother-in-law, and, and they're writers and producers and directors, and my husband, that I get a note, you know, and I'm thrilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, feedback is an art, and not everybody knows how to uh, do that art very well. I, right. It took me a little bit to learn that, uh, mm -hmm. and it was so important to go, oh, okay, 
you know what, this, this thing over here, that doesn't work. And that's not me being stubborn, but this does. This feedback is very helpful. Yeah, and there's an mm -hmm. art to being an, uh, a dramaturg, and there's an yeah. art to being an editor. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. Do you know? Uh, e editing, visually editing, think of it as the person who sits down and edits your you know, your narrative. They're doing the same mm -hmm. thing. They're, they're cutting it and shaping it with you based on what you've given them. So in a way, it's praising you for giving them all that raw material. It's like being a fantastic seamstress. You know what to cut away. Yeah. Or a sculptor, mm -hmm. you know what to take away. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one of my favorite uh, New York uh, up-and-coming playwrights, uh, his name is uh, Peter Turo, uh, is one of my favorite writers to work with because he will write a, an okay first draft. You will give him feedback and he will hack it mm -hmm. and just go to town because there's all what he wants is to collaborate for the best piece possible. And that ability to be able to maintain your own voice and your own approach, mm -hmm. but also take the feedback and work collaboratively. One of my favorite things about as an actor is when I get feedback means I'm not alone in this anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you're not left alone on a lifeboat right. trying it, to figure it exactly. out. And, you know, in the theater, I have found there are so many actors who are so deeply intelligent and wise. And the older we get and the more experience we have, there are actors who know. I had this, the blessing of doing a play by Stephen Karam called The Humans. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, he, not the humans. We were in Sons of the Prophet. He wrote the humans. Um, mm -hmm. We were in Sons of the Prophet with Santino Fontana. And, I saw uh, you in that. That was it, why I it, said yes, because I remember. Yeah, yeah it was it's lovely. It's a great play. Yeah. And, but but the, we did it in Boston. And then, you know, Stephen is a playwright, so secure. And he was just, I don't know, he was 26 at the time or something. And he came and said, how does this feel? And I said, I just think this can all go. I don't think. And he went away. And he came up with something 10 times better mm -hmm. because sometimes you have to ask the people who are wearing those clothes and yeah. carrying that story, what feels, you know, what can you discard over the side and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and he's one of them tremendously secure, mm -hmm. um, in that. And that was, that was kind of thrilling for me from one so young who could have been precious about everything, yeah. but wasn't. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought that play up because uh, it's uh, when I saw you in that. I saw you in Normal Heart. Wow. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, but as I was putting together sort of a timeline, sort of to remind us of all the wonderful things that you've done, that came to mind along with your role in Boogie Nights and Skeleton Twins mm -hmm. because you played yes. sort of the string of. We'd say terrible mothers. Yes, terrible mothers. <laughs> terrible mothers are us. Like toys are us. Like yes, right. Um, but uh, starting with with your experience on Boogie Nights, which I think a lot of people probably other than the West Wing would know you from. You know that once again, Paul Thomas Anderson was maybe twenty six or twenty seven mm -hmm. when he did that movie, and mm. uh, it's not an audition I would have expected to come to me because mm -hmm. I had done Broadway and comedy and musicals, and I I have no idea how I ended up in that room, but I but. But I, I read for him and I thought, wow, there wasn't a word I said on screen, not an epithet or anything that wasn't what he had already written. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wrote mm -hmm. it in such, it, it was just, it was effortless to learn and it was freeing. And I had a great time. I only worked three days on that, yeah. on that movie. But yeah, I mean, it's funny People said, oh, you know, I just hated you in that. I said, no, you, you didn't hate me. You hated the woman. <laughs> and you know, mm -hmm. and, and is it is it hard to play someone so mean? I went, every single mother I know has that in her. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? You know, not, I, 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 not that I've seen it on display anywhere. It's just, you're, you're, you know, you're an actor. You have an imagination. You have to, yeah. it's on the page. Do what's on the page. Yeah. I have also noticed as somebody who just loves a delicious villain, they're just fun or a complicated person uh, and imperfect. I have found generally that the nicest people I know play the meanest characters. Well, that's, it. it it's, yes, I've heard that a lot too, but, but here, here's the thing. Generally, you don't think of yourself as a villain. The character does not think exactly. of herself as a villain. Mm-hmm. She's put upon. She's, you know, she's trapped in a corner. Her life is uh, horrible. She's made every mistake in the world and is trying to cover. She's clueless. She's, you know, never wanted kids. What For whatever story, and you don't have to go off and write a biography for your character. I don't, I actually don't believe in that. I think everything in a good script is right there. Mm-hmm. It's right there. Do you know what I mean? If it's a bad mm-hmm. script and you've said yes mm-hmm. for your insurance or mortgage money and I've uh, done them. Real. Uh, yeah. If, if it's a mediocre script, you have to imbue the character with something real. Well, and I think that's the key to the kind people I know who play quote unquote bad characters so well is that there's an intrinsic empathy to these people and every character thinks that they are the hero of their story. And these actors I know who have just excess of empathy for other people are able to look at these characters and find that heart and play them with kindness as opposed to somebody who just looks at them on the page and just plays a cartoon villain. Right. And there are people who are irredeemable and there are people who have no heart and who really Mm -hmm. are incapable of empathy. It's been bred out of them and you have to play those people too. And you can't, by the way, fight for sympathy. You can't even leak out that your character needs to be, you know, uh, sympathized with because no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and not in this assignment. This assignment is no straight up terrible person. You just mm-hmm. that's that's your job. Real quickly, I read something about your audition for Boogie Nights that really took my breath away a bit. Actually, I don't know if you remember the story, but something that you said to him after the audition. Oh, I think I asked him if if his mother was like this. Yeah. <laughs> Or something like that. And he was so jet lagged and he he may have just kind of answered, but he may have nodded slightly. And yeah. I said, I, I think I cut him off and I said, because if she is, then you never have to forgive her. And that <laughs> oh. really was so beautiful. And I think sometimes we forget that, you know, we, we want to be able to forgive, but sometimes there are people in our life that it's unhealthy you, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm a big I'm a big believer in not uh, tearing layers of of of, of you know f- flesh and well being off of oneself by hanging on to um, rage and old injustices and things. Mm-hmm. B- but there are times when you just say no, you know, uh, yeah. don't forgive, don't forget, and 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 move on. Mostly, I forgive because, as an actor, I try to think, well, what were they going through at the time? Where did this come mm-hmm. from? Oh, look at their life. Oh, look at what button you pushed or whatever. And there are ways around it. But I don't I don't dwell on that because that kind of debris, to hang on to that kind of old debris, will make my body go through some of the same stuff it went through at the time it was mm-hmm. happening. And that kind of mm-hmm. recall, if you're if you're a highly tuned instrument or or a high strung <laughs> instrument, um, is just not healthy. It's yeah. just not healthy. I would rather move forward. I can incorporate that into a character someday that I'm writing. I do a lot of writing now, and and it's useful. It's like a therapeutic use of crap. You know, mm-hmm. you've had crap in your life. 
you've had curses placed on you at birth, whatever. <laughs> this is your emotional and creative artistic property. Mm-hmm. And by the way, she said, in answer to nothing in particular, any director or person in charge or or teacher who wants to know the absolute locus of your pain, I, I think that is um, not acceptable. I don't mm-hmm. think going after and traumatizing you again or making you relive trauma is not the place that's for your therapist or your you know, or your spiritual advisors. I I think that anybody who um, makes you so wildly uncomfortable that they think they have to torture your, or get you to torture yourself in order to get a result in a play or in a classroom or in a performance um, uh, should go bleep themselves because it's um, not necessary. Mm -hmm. You can explain it better, what you want from them. You can direct them better. You can teach them better so that they will want to come forward and show a side that comes from someplace private in them. I do not need to know where. It's none of my business. Exactly. It's really none of my business. Mm-hmm. And so I say this to all the people I've been teaching for 30 years. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody comes at you with, I have to see your most intimate, intimate moment, I have to see it. And you go, well, that's not applicable. It's not in this, you know, then stand up for yourself and say, no, show yeah. me another way. I'll get to it another way. But it, you're, the te- you're the one in charge. You show me how. Agreed. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I'd love to, you know, we've been talking a lot about theater, but there's also, and this one of the reasons that we reached out to you is because of your work in television and film. And what was your your transition into television and film from from theater? I had done a little bit here and there, but when I went to do I Love My Wife, uh, my first Broadway musical was in New York. I was living, I was married and living in California. So I came back to California, back to Los Angeles when it was over, like 14 months later. And I thought, well, now what do I do? I mean, there's was no theater scene really to speak of. And I um, auditioned for, because now I had this Broadway credit, so I was getting some auditions, and I auditioned for a show called uh, Hello, Larry. We have talked about that show on this, oh, this yes. podcast. Oh. There's a joke about it in the first season of Murphy Brown. I'm not the least <laughs> bit surprised. <laughs> uh, do you remember what the joke was? Um, oh, I don't remember. What was the joke? Oh, shoot. Was, I was just... Hmm. It was some, definitely something about the reception, you know, something, mm-hmm. something since, you know... Since yeah. Hello, Larry. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, I, I, I did the pilot and then it it was tossed out because they wanted to change leading men and so they shot the pilot again with a new leading man and then that was tossed out because that didn't work and Mm -hmm. by now I was pregnant with my son and we were doing another pilot with uh, McLean Stevenson and uh, I I was getting bigger and bigger and at at some point you'll notice there's an episode where I'm literally carrying a huge potted plant (laughs) (laughs) or practically moving a filing cabinet across Mm -hmm. the room. Um, so the transition was relatively painless. I just got lucky. I got lucky. So I also noticed I, I've been going through, at first I was listing all the things that I knew you from and I was like, wow, I just have too many to list. So I'm going to stop listing. <laughs> and, uh, but I noticed I'm, I'm very intrigued by your, your year in 1986 with Hannah and her sisters and Heartburn in the same year. Heartburn with Mike Nichols and Meryl mm-hmm. Streep. Yes, mm-hmm. that was fun. I had a couple of days shooting on that. That's because I had worked with Mike. I had replaced, uh, I had been the standby for the leads in The Real Thing and Mm -hmm. got actually to go on in both roles, both um, roles, um, the Glenn Close role 
and um, uh, Sarah and Christine Baranski's role, but by then it was Sarah Botsford and oh, Caroline Lagerfeld. Yes, yeah. it was kind of as the casts were changing over, and I got to go on for for both of them, and um, and then I I think that yes, then Hannah and her sisters. Was that around? Yeah. So you know, you're in New York, and you're doing a play for Mike Nichols, and you're doing a, 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 a movie for for Woody Allen, and Leno. Life feels pretty, pretty good. Yeah, not too shabby. Those casts are not too shabby. Not too shabby. Also, <laughs> yeah, and we've we've talked about the real thing before because Yardley mm-hmm. Smith, who also Yardley. understood it, yeah, was a mm-hmm. guest star on Murphy Brown, and we talked about mm-hmm. her career. Um, and there's so many stories about the real thing, particularly Cynthia Nixon doing two shows at the same time. Sure, I think she's doing Hurley Burley at the yes. same time. Mm-hmm. There's so much overlap that we've had mm-hmm. of things that we've discussed that our audience will, will recognize. Well, well, you know, we the theater community is is is, is a very kind of everybody yeah. knows everybody on campus. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. there mm-hmm. were times we'd all mingle and barbecue out back of one of the theaters on Wednesdays between shows. Aww. And yeah, and we'd have, oh, when we were doing Social Security, Marlo Thomas... Uh, uh, the late Ron Silver, Olympia Dukakis, Stefan Schnabel and I, and Kenny Welch. Um, Sundays, we would come early. You, I mean, you've just done, you know, seven shows, but Sunday morning, we would do brunch downstairs in the basement, where the wardrobe people were. And there were theme brunches. There would be, this is all Hawaiian, <laughs> and sometimes there were decorations, and or this one is pancakes and bacon. I mean, you, you do things, even in Sons of the Prophet, we had Christmas fun and latkes and, you know, and I, I brought Santa in for, I literally brought Santa Claus in <laughs> as somebody's secret Santa. Um, I brought Santa. Um, you have fun. I, I never had, f- I never remember having fun on a television show because it's a long day and yeah. it, it moves slowly, really. And then you go home because you're tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a new show to do the next week. Yeah. So, and I don't remember in the movies never being in one long enough, having a significant enough role so that there was all of that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, camaraderie. So how did Love and War come your way? I, oh, I auditioned. We, Nick and Nora um, closed uh, with a thud. <laughs> and Chris and I said, we're going to go to L.A., and see what we can do, see what work there is there. And my son had been living with his dad for a while in L.A., so we were going to make a kind of like shift and reblend the family. And we had, you know, zero dollars, and we were living with Chris's brother in his condo at the marina with the cats and <laughs> waking up with a cat on your head. And... Mm-hmm. um God love them, everybody. Uh, but we were not doing too well. And it was a kind of really low, depressing time for me because even in a flop, you're in the high of the theater. You know, you're in that community and with all those people that you know. And it was New York. And I, in, coming back to Los Angeles, my folks were there and my siblings were there. But I just felt um, like I was in exile, really. Mm-hmm. I, I felt being like I was being punished. <laughs> for something. And and apart from all the personal family stuff that was great to reconnect, uh, there was really not much work. I wasn't landing anything. And I wasn't, and now, by now I'm in my forties, I'm 41 or so, 41 or 42. And, and TV is younger, you know, or more established movie people are coming back to TV Mm -hmm. and things were changing. 
and then I got this audition. I, I got a call to audition for Diane English for, hmm. you know, Murphy Brown's Diane English is doing another show called Love and War. And I auditioned in a room full of the happiest, funniest writers and the most pleasant experience I had had in a long time. And, you know, when you make somebody laugh at an audition, you feel, well, that went well. And, and then I got it. I got it. And that changed everything. It mm -hmm. changed our ability to live, to move out of his brother's condo and to rent a tiny little place in the hills. And, you know, and everything sort of built from there. So for anyone who hasn't watched the show, which, by the way, is now streaming all three seasons on Amazon. So mm -hmm. our audience. It can, is. Yes. Every single episode is now up there free with Amazon Prime. Wow. How would you describe Nadine? Well, Nadine was a definitely <laughs> at one point. Diane said to me, no, you're getting too, you've come too far down the sawmill. Go back up to Westchester. <laughs> she said, she's not hip. She's one of these women, you know, who had her life in order, sort of like this. And then her husband gets carted off, you know, to, to jail and she has nothing and she has to find herself again. And here she's put in the middle of these these hip, you know, young New Yorkers and characters, and she's working as a waitress, the last place she thought she'd ever be. So she's, um, she's adorable, really. And uh, that, ca I must say, that was a cast to love. And also, I spent three years with them. So that's the longest I'd ever spent mm -hmm. with anybody in television. And then first, it was Susan Day, and then Annie Potts came in and Annie and I had toured in 1976 in Charlie's Aunt with Vincent Price and Roddy McDowell and Coral Brown. And we just I mean, I adore this woman and Jay Thomas, just the best and Joel Murray. Mm -hmm. And Susie Plaxon and the late John Hancock was in it. Susie and I would just hang out together endlessly. And that was a cast that was, and the directors they brought in were fantastic. All of them. So I had a really good time. I, I had a really good time. And we all had a really good time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any particular stories that you remember that you'd like to tell uh, well, us? There are two. Yeah. One is that there was an episode called Nadine Sings the Blues. <laughs> oh, yes. I just oh, remember. Yes. I forgot Di about that. Diane, it might have been Mark Flanagan who wrote it. I'm not sure. But Diane said, um, I want you to wear the, this dress. Nadine gets quite drunk and sings it. She's sort of singing at like an open mic <laughs> kind of thing. And they, I did sing a song. It might have been... I can't remember if it was Bridge Over Troubled Water. It was something crazy and, and drunk. She had me wear this rubber dress. It was purple and yellow with a big flouncy skirt tied on top, a big flouncy skirt, I think bare arms. I think it was like a scuba outfit, but a dress. I don't remember that. And <laughs> feathers. And it was just, and high heels. I hadn't, you know, you wait when you're not the lead character. You wait until the series is established enough and the characters are established enough the, that you can break out and do something that's fun for the actor, you know, more fun for the actor, more attention on that part. You can't do it right up front. There's too much to service, too much story to service. And so this happened, and I, I, I just had the best, the best time. But the other thing is, Diane English, I expressed my desire to direct, and she said, come with me to the editing room, and she showed me how to watch how something is put together. And in watching how it was cut together, I then went home and turned off the sound and would watch our show with the sound off to see mm. how it was cut together, how oh. the story progresses. And then she said, I'm going to give you an episode to direct of Love and War. And she did. And I became a director. And then when Louis Anderson had six, an, an order for six shows at CBS, she gave me three of them. And so I owe her a great deal. Well, and when we uh, spoke to Susie, she brought up uh, loving you as a director. 
and wishing that there had been more later had it gone longer. I, yeah, I would have loved that too. I mean, when I've been directed by by actors, and it is a slightly different experience. Yeah. It's actually a very oh, yes. different experience. That was what we talked about. Yeah, there's yeah. just a, a language that they understand that certain directors just don't. Right, yeah. and also where it can breathe and where mm-hmm. you're showing something so that, you know, in rat tat 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 sitcoms, it's beat, beat, joke and laugh and audience and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes there's room for the actor, because they're all good, to just show you something that gets a laugh rather than have to, you know, by not doing anything, letting it breathe for a second, doing that slow little inner monologue of what just happened that is as expressive as keeping things moving so incredibly fast. So, you know, I like... I. I like to listen as a character. I like to be the one listening because you can show so much without, yeah. you know, without making faces. You can show a great deal just by your thoughts. And, um, yeah, but uh, it was an easy set to be on. It was great. Well, and speaking of actors as directors, so when you uh, guest starred on Murphy Brown, uh, Joe Ragobuto was the director. Yeah. That's right. What was that like working with him? Adorable side. <laughs> oh, just yeah. adorable because he's adorable and and high high energy and and it flowed smoothly. And I played a sort of Ariana Huffington character. I think I might have had an accent of some sort. Yes, you turning did, fifty. You and, didn't have an accent. I mean, you a, a non American accent, I should say. Right. Um, but I was surprised watching it again. Did you, I think you played your own mother on a voicemail message. Yes, I did. And I hadn't <laughs> yes, noticed that the first time. And it, I, that was really funny. But anyway, yeah. continue. <laughs> no, once again, you know, when you're with the people who are who are who are having great success and they're comfortable in their own skin and Candace leads the way with her generosity, you know, and her how easy and how talented, then it's a piece of cake. Same thing. I did a few episodes of Friends. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew they were on a hit. They were secure. They were comfortable. There was an ease to it. It ran like a well-oiled machine. We've talked about that friend's uh, storyline, the smoking episode is... Yeah. We've talked about that before. (laughs) And before we continue to remind people, um, the episode of Murphy Brown that you were in was called Petty Woman. (laughs) It was from the final season, which is when Diane did return as consultant, um, episode seven. And then on Friends, most people probably know you as Rachel's boss. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but the smoking part—that—that that is something that I feel like always seems to come up uh, at least before you know you, you uh, could smoke everywhere. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I don't smoke and I never have. Oh, and really? Yeah. yeah so I'm just spent the whole time going. Oh, phew, phew, phew. Do you feel that most people recognize you other than I would say the West Wing from Friends? We were we were in we were guests of somebody up um, in uh, at the Cape. Uh, up in near Provincetown a few summers ago, and we went to a little restaurant to mm-hmm. kind of just you know get clams and steamers by the bucket. And the, much of the wait staff was from Ireland. They come over for summer jobs, and they all knew me from Friends. It's really big in the hmm. UK. Yeah, yeah, that was astonishing. We went to Paris once, and at a tiny little restaurant, somebody knew me from the Woody Allen movie. Yeah, you know, from from one of or both of Woody Allen's movies, and yeah, it's just it's whatever gets over there and plays on a loop endlessly. They start to know you. Well, Lauren did bring it up, so I w- I would love to ask you about any uh, memories or experiences you have from one of our other favorite shows, which is The West Wing. Um, I think that's might be one of the things I aside from my our rest in peace, my uh, Into the Woods VHS um, <laughs> that I just watched so many times it died, but uh, I probably knew you best from watching The West Wing um, for a long time. You know, uh, 
if you get, you know, it's like if you get to work with Steve Sondheim or Mike Nichols, you know, James Lapine, if you get to work with these people and, and doing two Woody Allen movies, you know, you have something that's very um, precious and shiny and you're just really lucky. The West Wing, this is, this was Aaron Storkin. This was a, a show I never missed and would watch mm-hmm. when it was on reruns, you know, when it would play endlessly. Uh, I would just watch and watch and I think I did three or four of them, and mostly my things were with John Spencer. Yeah. And mm-hmm. John's, mm-hmm. and the best directors, by the way, Tommy Shlami and, and um, Alex uh, Graves. Vince Missiano. Yes, oh. Alex Graves and uh, mm-hmm. Missiano, both Chris Missiano, I think, and his brother Vince Missiano. Fantastic directions. And Aaron was around. So um, there was John Spencer, and we in film it moves slowly big congressional hearing scene we were there all day and john and i sitting at the table together just never stopped talking and talking about everything in the world and then the cameras would roll and he was perhaps the most deeply intense and focused and present actor i've ever worked with and so Mm -hmm. you feel stuff in you happening that's supposed to happen in character that you could not have planned or rehearsed. Mm-hmm. It was just a kind of alchemy, a kind of magic, and I'll never forget it. You did five episodes as attorney Jordan Kendall. Yeah. And actually, I, I would say, it as a, as a West Wing fan, it's it means a lot to hear that. I, I would say Leo McGarry is probably one of my favorite characters ever oh. put on television. Yeah. And it's such a loss to have lost John Spencer as young as, as he was. It is. Um, I, I used to, one of my favorite tweets I ever made was that when Leo McGarry cries, the world cries with him. <laughs> yes, a- absolutely right. He's just a heartbreakingly wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. I, I miss a, a, him. I miss doing a show like that, mm-hmm. you know, and I miss a, a kind of a, a, a country like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I do watch it on Netflix as kind of my, my democratic salve sometimes. Yeah. Well, we're not going to devolve I- mm-hmm. into a discussion, but there's there's something about the how we how we had the wishful thinking that things did work like that yeah. in government, mm-hmm. but it, it's hard to find. But now it's closer to Veep. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've gone from West Wing to Veep, which I adore, and and yes. you just at some point you just have to laugh. This macabre mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> you know, look what's happened. <laughs> and as my dad used to say, oh, it's a blip. We've seen worse. Uh, but you know, there are times when I think I don't know. I don't know if we've seen the worst. Yeah. What's the the Carrie Fisher quote? If if my life wasn't funny, then it would just be real, and that's unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite Carrie Fisher quotes mm-hmm. too. Yes, there you are. need to learn how to laugh. <laughs> yep, indeed. Yeah, it's, I think as humans, that's all we can do. I mean, that's also what I loved about The West Wing was that it was uh, I would call it a dramedy if we're still using mm-hmm. that word. Mm-hmm. You know, there was such a great balance of of comedy and drama, and then you and John Spencer had such great chemistry and that sort of, you know, 1940s kind of yeah, 30s, yeah, you know, yeah. dialogue mm-hmm. back and forth. Yes, my favorite era. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was named Jordan Elaine Kendall. And I thought, and I didn't ask Aaron this, but I thought, well, here are three of my heroes. There's Barbara Jordan, and there's <laughs> Elaine May, and there's Kay Kendall, you know, like this. Oh, and yeah. I just thought, oh, okay, an amalgam. That's, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, just take that and run with it. it wor- and it worked. So how was the newsroom experience different? Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It, w- would you, this was just an offer. Would you, you're going to be in LA. Would you come and play, uh, uh, um, you know, Sam Waterston's wife in the final episode of the final, you know, season of the show ever? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And it was great. Yeah, that was my sad, 
I mean, I was, was sad that newsroom was ending, but when you showed up, because I had no idea you were going to be in it, I thought, oh, but now she <laughs> can't come back. Exactly. <laughs> right, back. Like, no. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I know people who they have their yearly viewing of the West Wing. <laughs> oh, yeah. They start from the beginning. Oh, God. And they go all the way through it. Oh. And I... I'm with them in spirit, but yeah. also I don't want to ruin it. I love the show so much that yeah. I feel if I overwatch it, it yeah. won't be exciting and interesting. Even yes. though I do remember so much. I mean, oh, I can yeah. tell you your first episode was Bartlett for America. That's right. I will say that I watch I watch Shibboleth every year at Thanksgiving. Shibboleth is just brilliant. Shibboleth I watch is brilliant. that and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and it's the ultimate Thanksgiving. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I know. <laughs> I know. And Bartlett for America Part 2. Um, oh, yeah. So you have mentioned, I, and I'm happy to pop back to acting roles as well, but I am really fascinated um, about what led you toward education and teaching and working with artists that way. When I was doing Into the Woods, I think uh, somebody from Circle in the Square Theater School said, would you come and do a master class? And I had, I had done, I think, the occasional master class when I was living in L.A. And, and at other times. And I did, and we made it a kind of a regular thing. Like Fridays I would do two two-hour classes or two one-hour classes. And um, it was, it uses everything I know, and it it taught me a great deal. And it also showed me that young actors really, it's less about trying to make them talented, which you kind of can't do, but you can help coordinate whatever talent they have and encourage them in, in a lot of different directions. But it's a kind of, it became a kind of therapy, um, mm. a way of seeing what damage they came with, with my never asking, because it's none of my business, but seeing what they're covering and seeing what they're, where they sell themselves short and what they th put forward as their strong suit and what their armor is. And then just kind of gently moving those things around to let them get into a space where there's no old debris and play play the character and relate to each other and get out of your own head yes and that's what i realized <laughs> no this, this is kind of like a almost like a public service aspect to this mm -hmm. so. well and i believe also as a as a teaching artist myself we talked about this a little bit before but i believe so much of having had educators who were doing it for the wrong reasons having having teaching artists on teachers professors educators who are passionate about doing it to do it mm -hmm. who believe in in a nobility in in the form in the public service and encouraging arts and coming from a place of love and passion for that as opposed to just right because. and I, and i i really get up very uptight with people who who cast a, a kind of um side eye uh at, at teachers, you know, in general, uh, in, in universities and colleges particularly, with a quote, quote, you have an agenda, you know, you have a mm. progressive agenda. And I thought I had a fight with a friend of mine. And I said, no, no, what are you so afraid of? The, the great schools and the great teachers don't teach your children what to think. Mm. They just teach them how to think. And yeah. this is what we're missing. Nobody, we're missing the capacity for critical thinking, for mm -hmm. in-depth thinking, for dialogue. You know, that's all, it's all snap judgment. And I must say social media is, is a large part of what's wrong with everything in the world. Um, but that if we're fear-based organisms, then we lock on to the way certain things have to be based on what we've been told by mostly our parents or whatever. And it gives us, not us, it gives certain people a kind of strength where they feel afraid, but really it's not strength. You know what I mean? It's more armor. 
And mm-hmm. our job as teachers is to disarmor you mm-hmm. for an hour and see if you can find more things to think and feel on your own. Mm-hmm. And what you might understand about somebody else who isn't like you. My, I would say my favorite teacher is always either answered my question with another question, generally asking me what I thought, mm-hmm. or had a discussion with me over somebody who just told me the answer. Yeah, you really have to find mm-hmm. out what are you thinking? Well, what do you think? Well, what mm-hmm. does this mean to you? And, uh, you know, uh, there's another thing I do that stu- where students will get locked at a certain moment and and I'll say, what's the matter? Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm afraid. I say, oh, well, afraid of what? Well, I'm afraid I might, um, I might uh, start to cry. And then I say, and then what might happen? This actually came from a therapist named Arthur Phillips. Arthur, if you're listening, I haven't seen you in 40 years, but Arthur, I'll never forget this. (laughs) He was a therapist, a friend, and he also flew this little plane. And I, at that time, I was fearful of flying and he took me out to the airport. I'm, I'm digressing here and you can edit around this, but (laughs) he took me to the airport and he showed me this plane that is no bigger than the size of this dining room table. And this is the thing, this is the engine and this is the throttle and this is the air mixture and the thing. Here are the flaps and everything. Ready? Want to go for a spin? I went, no, take me home. And so we we went back home. You know, I've been fine, you know, ever since. But, but Arthur was a therapist. And one thing he said is, can you take this this wall that you've hit and answer the question, then what might happen? What happens mm-hmm. in the next minute? So the student would say, I might um, cry and never be able to stop. I say, okay, and then what might happen? Uh, I might stop. Uh, yes, and then what might happen? I might start over. I went, yeah, yeah, or any number mm-hmm. of possible right answers. But they, you keep thinking about the next moment and you get unlocked. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, that's thank you, Arthur Phillips, if you're listening. And sometimes I think when you say things out loud, you hear yourself say it and you go, oh, well, that's that's simple that I can get over that. That's yeah. not as a big deal as it was in my head. Yes. Okay. I, I mean, I wanted to start a blog and I even have the kind of cartoon art for it for the <laughs> page called um, Bear With Me, B-E-A-R, Bear With Me with a picture of me with a bear literally ne- next to me because... <laughs> oh, it's your Twitter picture. It's my Twitter picture. Yeah. And yes, and now everybody will know that that is I. Um, <laughs> I What I say, and once again, since I'm in the business right now of um, not... Uh, uh, stealing stuff as my own. This could have been Arthur Phillips, but it could have been me. I just don't remember. But we would say, if you're afraid to open the door because there might be a bear there, that's anxiety. But if you open the door and there's a bear there, that's fear. You know, mm-hmm. learning the difference between the two yeah. things. What what bear have you created for yourself if you open that door? Do you think, you know what I'm saying? And save it for when there's really a bear at the door. Save your fears. Oh, that's for, wonderful. Yeah. I've discussed a lot with uh, fellow artists about the concept of uh, boundaries and barriers and about which one is keeps you safe and which one keeps you from forward momentum. Yeah. And which one can be melded and which one can, needs to be shattered. Well, the thing <laughs> is you can see across a border. Mm-hmm. You can see across a barrier. But you can't, uh, you know, you, I mean, I, I'm sorry, you can't see, you know, if there's a barrier, you can't see across it. But a boundary, a line in the sand, a, you know what I'm saying? A border, mm-hmm. you can see across. And yeah. you can see what it is you think you're afraid of. Yeah, no, this is, that's so lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I'll take that one then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any particular stories or television shows that we have not covered that our audience might like to hear? 
Well, I, I don't really know because, you know, sometimes we all get together, all of us who've been in shows, and we tell our war stories, and mm-hmm. we have a lot of, a lot of them, and it just makes us remember the other ones. But I, I actually don't kind of carry them around unless something, you know, sure. kind of tips yeah. my memory. I, I just if you if you played you know, kind of first impression thing with me and said, for example, Diane English, I thought, she's my hero. Tell us why. Because she she created an environment where I could do good work, but then she said, I'm going to give you an episode of, of you know, of CBS network television to mm-hmm. direct from, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, with no experience. And that does a big, brave thing to do. And she was a big, brave, uh, creative person who had the... And she was right there, but nobody, nobody, you know, stepped yeah. on my toes. It was, it was, it was fantastic and kind of groundbreaking because it was back in the nineties. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I get to play with my friends, you know, Chip Zion and I, Chip from Into the Woods, remain close friends, have watched each other's kids get married and have babies. We all have these grandchildren. We have thousands of grandchildren <laughs> <laughs> running around. And that's kind of thrilling to check in with each other. And, um, there's a community of actors up here where we live in Connecticut, lots of New York actors, uh, and writers and directors live up here. And there's that circle of friends and that's fantastic. But in terms of funny stories, no, I, I don't really, I mean, yeah. you know, we'd have to be sitting and I'd have to go, oh yeah, I remember because yeah. I, I don't really sort of carry it around, you know, um, in my, in my hip pocket. But needless to say, there are stories I could tell. But it would be unseemly of me. That's a, I have to wait till certain people uh, pass on. <laughs> Understood. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well. Um, what, oh. But, no. No. Okay. Um, no. I just realized this is a terrible segue. Um, I was going to ask you to talk about Jay Thomas. Mm-hmm. Jay. But, Jay was fantastic. Jay could. He was fast and smart, and you know he was the kind of guy who could actually could get some lovely nuanced performances out of him, even though he's known for being kind of like quick and fast and, you know, mm-hmm. and irreverent. I, I was just shocked as can be to learn that he, that he died. I just, it was to me, we hadn't, we hadn't stayed in touch, but you know, every year for, for however long it was, uh, David Letterman would play the episode of Jay, yeah. you know, telling the story about the Lone Ranger. And it was just like, it was a classic. It was the kind of thing where I know this story. I've heard it every year. I'm still laughing my ass off, you know. And he, he was that, he was, he could, fl- I, I call it being able to, to make change. You know, you throw him a buck, metaphorically, you sort of throw him a buck and he could flip you. What do you want? Four quarters? What do you want? Ten dimes? What do you want? You know, nickels yeah. and dimes? Because he had it there. He had access to, a very funny and very smart brain. And that's a big loss. Yeah, we, we love Jay here. <laughs> yeah. As well you should. He was great on Murphy you're Brown. T- hey, when- well, and you're sitting next to probably the world's biggest Jerry Gold fan. So. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Gold, the man of your dreams. I don't know about that. <laughs> as, he, as he matures, maybe. Yeah, yes. Um, but, uh, but as I was telling you when we were having lunch... Um, and we've talked oh, about meal dropper. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just laughing at myself. Um, we, we talked about on the show before is that uh, I had wanted to be an actor. And when I was 12, I looked at things at a very sort of, you know, um, 1D way. And I thought, great, he is on everything. 
I will just be a professional guest actor and then I'm done. Not understanding how more money you get paid for a series regular, not understanding the concept of how hard it is to be an actor. I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to be. In fact, um, I remember telling a friend of mine, I want to be the female Jay Thomas. And she looked at me and went, don't you want to be successful? Oh, yes. that's cold. It, well, I think that she thought that she was being helpful. No. I think it's hilarious after the fact, but I, I was, I was taken aback by that. <laughs> but she didn't see that as being successful. I saw it. He's working. He's sure. a working actor. That's successful. That's successful. Also, yeah. you know, let's factor in how's your life. Mm-hmm. That too, yeah. And and since Jay has passed and he is a big part of Murphy Brown, it's great to talk to people who can, you know, bring him to our podcast. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not one of your larger roles in your career, but I would love to hear about your experience on one of my family favorite movies, Mr. Holland's Opus. Oh, that has special meaning for me because mm-hmm. uh, there was a Mr. Holland in my life, and that was my oh. high school teacher, John Ingle, who turned out to be the high school teacher of Richard Dreyfus. Richard and I were what? in high school. Yes, he was a senior when I was a, a freshman. Um, oh. In fact, I kind of—I think I used to kind of follow him around campus, <laughs> unbeknownst to him, having a little crushlet on him. Um, Richard Dreyfus and I both went to Beverly Hills High School, and he was a mm. senior, I was a freshman. And we both had this same incredible teacher, John Ingle, who then went on to be on a soap for many years, a big famous soap, and he was kind of, I don't remember which one it was, but he was the one who told me, you know, you're a character actress now. I mean, I played every old spinster you could think of, every ugly townsperson you could think of, you know, that uh, uh, was me. And and funny stuff, he said, don't despair. You do this now. You're going to grow into your leading lady and you'll work forever. That's what they said to Alison Janney, too. Yes. Yes, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And you grow into it and you never stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I adore her. And Mm -hmm. character actors are always my favorite. They were the most interesting. I mean, every actor is a character actor, unless unless truly you see somebody who is pretty much just a photogenic blank, and then they have no character, even if they're assigned one, that happens. But But the good actors in leads or in subordinate roles are all character actors. That's a good point. Well, one of our um, favorite things to talk about is the fact that we both grew up with these these actors who played such a variety of roles and were around for so long through our lives, and those were the people that we looked up to, because there's that idea of if you want a career, you want longevity. Yeah. And so the ability to play different types of people, to morph yourself and not just be pretty for a couple of years yeah. is definitely the goal. Yeah, it is the goal. <laughs> It is mm-hmm. the goal. And if you look at some of the non-standardized beauties who were the big legendary actors in the 40s, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, truly, they be, they became, well, they were shot beautifully, you know, by <laughs> Harrell or whoever. But Barbara Stanwyck wasn't a traditional beauty. Betty Davis mm-hmm. wasn't a traditional beauty, you know, not mm-hmm. not bombshell kind of thing. I'm, um, th- they were they were beautiful because of all, all of that talent. They were beautiful mm-hmm. in how they could tell a story and move you. And, um, yeah. They well, were, and I, I enjoy the, the concept of the, the character actor, although yes, there's definitely a stigma to that, that it's either you're this or you're a character actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um. is code, of course, for, you know, not pretty enough yeah. or not, you know, not famous yeah. enough or not sexy yeah. enough or well, whatever the mm-hmm. hell, whatever the bleep they've decided it is. And you can carry that around thinking, oh, I'm in that pigeonhole, but, or you cannot. You know, and you just guide the own narrative of your life. If you're lucky, you just guide the narrative of this is what I want to do, no matter where you do it, tiny theater somewhere. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be, you know, 
on the main stage. And then oh. somebody could discover, oh, this is a leading lady after all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's that great, uh, that great quote from a first wives club that uh, Goldie Hawn says about uh, there's the, the babe, the district attorney and driving Miss Daisy. And those are your three options. <laughs> yes, right. And, um, and what's great about the idea of the longevity of being a character actor is that you get to break that stigma. You don't have a certain shelf life for different types. Yeah. And it's great to have more women uh, creating right now because we are definitely breaking that as far as who leads are. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, I just uh, got to see um, Ann Dowd speak. Oh, uh, fantastic. She's incredible. And she just told incredible stories about getting out of uh, actually the school where I'm in grad school. That's where I got to see her. Uh, But she gave this lovely speech about just focusing on your path and what you are doing Mm -hmm. and being true to yourself. As you watch, you're going to see your contemporaries move at different speeds. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's their speed. Mm -hmm. Move at yours and do what's right for you. And she talks about being older when her quote unquote break happened. Mm -hmm. But she'd been working the whole time. Of course. This is when people decided to notice. Of course. (laughs) Of course. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm writing now and, um, and I do, do have this other show that I'm doing. I wrote a new show and we've been at Feinstein's twice to, for two terrific runs in March and July. And I'm going to do it at a big theater up here, the Quick Center in Fairfield in November, November the 8th and mm. possibly Los Angeles in February. And it's, it's a one, it's not a one person show. I have, you know, seven musicians up there, singers and musicians with me. But it's uh, but I guide the narrative. I wrote the story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. It's autobi- It's about my folks. And it, there's a lot of music, a lot of singing. It's very funny, and it's very moving, and it's a piece of material I wanted to do, Yeah. Mm-hmm. in which I don't think of myself as leading lady or character lady. It, there's just no difference. I'm the storyteller. I get to tell the story. And likewise, I've written two screenplays, and one has kind of received um, a great deal of interest in another one I've just finished, and I'm going to shoot a short that I wrote, you know, and I'm just thinking, I'm guiding the narrative. These are the stories I want to tell. This is how I want to tell them. And there's no, so suddenly I'm not leading or supporting or anything. I'm the writer. I'm the performer. I'm Joanna. I'm the director. You know, whatever it is I want, but I, but I think, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm older than the two of you put together, so I've I've paid my dues by doing the. I am, aren't I? Looking at you, <laughs> probably look at you with your abacus, like trying to figure out is that so? Is that so? I'm like I'm actually not sure. That's true. <laughs> um, but this is the time in life where I have spent, you know, off and on forty years in the theater, but not consistently, not as much as as a lot of others do. But then I've also done TV, not as much as others do, more than some. You know, and and then a few movies here and there. And I'm just, I'm not hungry to bulk up my resume. Mm-hmm. I'm just hungry to do the kind of work I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a the great empowering moment of getting to be the storyteller. Yeah. And there are so many different ways you can be that person. Yes. And by the way, teaching is a very good thing for everybody to do. Oh, yes. You know, sometimes I have actors teach the exercise to another actor. And in the very act of teaching them, Mm -hmm. they're not self-conscious and they've actually absorbed the information and can pass it on, which means they've really learned it. Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah. That's a really good idea. Everybody should spend a year teaching. Well, that's where you figure out where your gaps are. Yeah. With a second that you you either realize you know the answer Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, okay, I remember that. Or you don't know the answer and then you know where to look. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we don't have a lot of time, but... um, would you be able to talk about your time doing Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? 
Oh, thank you. I was going to ask about that. Well, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Jeffrey Lane, David Yazbek, two amazing writers and composers, and Jack O'Brien, the legendary mm-hmm. Jack O'Brien, whom I adore. John Lithgow, let's just start at the top. Okay. Yes, Because when you have John Lithgow leading the company, everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. I was happy. I was happy every day because John was there. And it, it was, you know, Greg Jabara and I played most of our scenes together. Mm-hmm. Sherry Renee Scott, Norbert Leo Butts. I mean, this cast was fantastic. Amazing. Fun, 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 fun. Lots of hijinks, some of which I can reveal, some of which would bring me up on charges with Actors' Equity. But nonetheless, <laughs> I'm in charge of that kind of, uh, you know, nonsense in the long run. Uh, it, it was great fun. Now, did mm-hmm. you have, I know that your character is a composite compared to the movie, but did you watch the movie? No, I didn't watch the out? movie. Yeah. Didn't. I did, so I've never really learned anything from watching. I've gotten to be the one to, um, be the first person to play a role. Mm-hmm. I didn't create it. The writers created it, but I'm the first one that it's built on in most of the things I've done. And I, mm-hmm. I love that. I really do. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a great opportunity. Yeah. I've been lucky. I was going to say, uh, Muriel in, in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is quite a delightful character. She was. Um, <laughs> she, was she was She was delightful. Was it written for you? Because it's very specifically yeah. you. Jeffrey Lane mm. is a friend of mine, and Jeff had written on the Bette Midler show, the short-lived Bette. Oh, I Bette. wanted to talk about that. We won't mm, spend yes, a lot of time no. on that. But, but, but Bette's wonderful, and it just wasn't the right fit, and, uh, and yet Jeffrey and I work together yeah. on that. And then so when he wrote this, he did, he did I think, yeah. have me in mind, because a lot of it is very couture fit to the actor. What do you feel? I mean, I know we talked about a little bit of influence growing up, but I I feel that your comic persona is very specific and is very you. Do you know what's behind that? Is it is it I was just you know or? No, I was funny as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was just funny. Also, it's also interesting to look back and see that when your dad is working, you know, up until like 9.30 every night and comes mm-hmm. home and he's, or he's commuting or he's in one town and you're in the other, or mom is feeling like blue because dad's out of town for a while. Or, you know, when, when there's that kind of adult stuff that you can't name because you're so little, being the one that makes people laugh, breaks the tension mm-hmm. was, I think, kind of got absorbed into me as a kind of job. Do you know what I mean? No burden. But I knew that if I could keep everybody laughing, the the fatigue and the logistical exhaustion and the just yeah. the kind of managing you know a house and his career and the, the, all the stuff and two kids and, and three kids, um, the tension would ease and so I, I think that might be the subconscious workings of that but mostly I just made people laugh because I think things are funny and I I see incongruities and I see ironies in almost everything and at the lowest point in my life. And I was 21 years old. I was in college and I, was, I borrowed a car and I was at Occidental College in, in Los Angeles, down in a more eastern part of LA. I was so despondent about something that shall remain private. And I took a long drive and I drove all the way out to the ocean. And I was really thinking at one second, for one second, I thought I could just drive off the end of that pier. I mean, it was ridiculous and dramatic, you know, because we, I think every kid, every creative person I know has allowed themselves to, you know, imagine things that are unthinkable and not to be trifled with if they're real as red flags. This, this wasn't, it was a passing thought. And at the same moment, a a seagull landed on the hood of my car and looked at me with this, like, what the, you know, who, I can't say it because you'll bleep it, but 
just, who do you think, what are you talking about? And this bird was looking at me and I started to laugh and then I just drove back to the campus. And I thought, yes, of course. I mean, of course. Mm -hmm. You're just being mm -hmm. dramatic. You're just having a moment. Now, you know, in life, one must recognize if these things start to spiral and as if it's real behavior, but it wasn't. It was just, it was late teenage angst and, mm -hmm. and depression and loneliness and the kind of stuff that I got rescued from by being in the theater. Because mm -hmm. I knew I had to show up at rehearsal the next night yeah. after class. So to a certain extent, having that group of people around me, having the part, having the, the, the great input from my teachers and from the rest of the cast was the tonic that lifted my spirits, you know? And I just would love every kid to feel uh, that there's a place they go where they feel included, which is why every kid should be at one time or another in a play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it teaches you how to work together with people. Even if you're making costumes, even if you're yeah. just painting the sets, even if you've only got two lines, you're part of the company. And everybody yep. else in the company should make you feel like you're part of the company. Well, there's the uh, inherent in the concept of ensemble, whether you're on stage or in, in tech or directing, that you have to be outside of yourself for a while to work together. Yeah. And it just, it brings these skills. And I think everyone should be in an acting class, just even an intro acting class at some point. Um, because the ability to be and not only empathetic to others, but to yourself to ask questions to have to step outside and look at something from an emotional intelligence. Absolutely. But you know, I, I'm incredible. just thinking here, it can be the chess club, it can be home ec mm -hmm. or, or auto mechanics, everybody wants to belong somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if they don't feel like they belong with anybody, then they need to belong somewhere where they're expected. It's like mm -hmm. the cheers bar, you know, you want to go someplace <laughs> where everybody knows your name and just be part of something. And there are so many, and teenage years now are fraught. And again, yeah. this is social media and the world we live in, but, and brain chemistry has altered, I think, I don't know, for whatever reasons, but it seems that in huge numbers, there are so many people on the sidelines who don't feel like they belong everywhere. And everybody else looks like they know what's happening or mm -hmm. are all going the same place, but you're not included or are in on the joke. And and when you see the person who, you know, is looking like, because I was a new kid six times, six different mm. moves, the one who didn't know what everybody else seemed to know, but there was, there was someone, and she's my dear friend to this day, 50 some odd years ago, who pulled me in by the arm and said, you're coming with us. Mm. And that changed everything. Mm -hmm. I agree. There's something about, we've talked about this before on the, on the pod about you know, everyone has imposter syndrome. Everyone has this moment where they feel like they don't belong or they shouldn't be there and yeah. everyone's going to figure it out. Yeah. But there is that, regardless of what club it is or if it's a, a team or whatever it is, about finding your little island of misfit toys. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, yes. it's empowering. Yes. And watch out for the ones who think they have it all and don't really care about anybody else and think mm -hmm. life is always going to be like that because it probably won't, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's cliquish and it's mean and it's difficult out mm -hmm. there. These I have seven, soon to be nine grandchildren and I'm watching them. They're all going to have to navigate this new world, which mm -hmm. is certainly new from when I was their age. Mm -hmm. And for us. Yeah. And I for mean, you too. Yeah. yeah, it's it's moving quickly. The world is changing very quickly, and so I I love these these art forms that are truly timeless in many ways that can really ground everybody to what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and sit around and play Trivial Pursuit and Scrabble and all the board games. Have a night of playing board games and eating pizza and Jeopardy. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you have to say what is or my husband will be very upset. (laughs) Well, that's if anything we've learned from this conversation. That's it. That's what we're going to end with. (laughs) Answer Jeopardy correctly. But we're we're, unfortunately our time is up. Thank you. This has been wonderful, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having a great time. Same. And we'll see you for the next edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Thank you.